Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to store and lock away all medications to prevent theft and keep them away from children and pets. Old medications can be disposed at Dropbox locations. Dropbox locations can be found at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. As always, I'm very glad that you are with us for our show today, a very special edition of Political Rewind. Right, right before we went on the air, I asked our guest today, Clark Howard, uh, the one of the most preeminent consumer uh, advice givers in the country, uh, whether I would be on the right track if I began our conversation by asking him whether the pandemic has had the most profound impact on our consumer buying habits of any event in our modern history. And he tells me that I can ask him that question. And so after I really introduce him more formally, I'll be interested in what Clark has to say about that. Um, Most of you in our listening audience know who Clark Howard is. He's had an extraordinary uh, career over the years, starting I think in the early 80s, maybe 80, 81, uh, when he opened a travel agency as a very, very young man, sold it rather quickly, uh, made enough money to retire, but um, I think by the end of the 80s had decided that his true calling was offering people uh, uh, information that would help them make better decisions about how they spend uh, and save their money. Uh, He uh, did a radio show that started on WSB radio many years ago. It became a nationally syndicated show. Uh, Clark is the author of 10 uh, books, three of them on the New York Times bestseller list. One of them was number one. Uh, I think in about 2012, 13, 14, Clark was inducted into the National Radio Hall of Fame. And today he is doing a daily podcast in addition to all of the websites which uh, carry the information that helps make you smarter. Clark Howard, at the start of every one of your podcasts, you say that your mission is to serve and empower you, the listener, to make better financial decisions in your life. And that's some of what we want to talk about today. And I'm so happy that you're here today, Clark. Thanks for joining us. Well, this is so fun. I, I just love it. And you and I have known each other for 31 years. And why do we look the same as we did 31 years ago? You sure as heck do. So we should tell people that back in what, when did you start your radio show at WSB? Like 88, 89, something like that? I started at a station doesn't exist anymore. I drove them out of business. It was called WGST Radio. (laughs) Yeah. And then I went to WSB Radio and TV. And it was funny, Bill, when they hired me, at WSB to work in both. I said, well, I don't know anything about TV. And they said, we'll teach you. And they sent me in the middle of winter to Iowa to a TV consultants, <laughs> Maggie, TV school. Frank Maggie. That's right. That's exactly right. <laughs> and I, I still don't know how to do TV. Yeah, well, I think there are a lot of people who are devoted to your reports who would take issue with that. We should we can tell people that back in the day, back in the uh, in the early days of your work at WSB Radio, you would sit in the AM studio. Our TV newsroom was nearby. I'd walk past you, see you on the air, wave. Your wife now, Lane Carlock, was a producer at 
the station, the radio station. So we've all known each other forever, Clark. And she looks just as young as she did then, Bill. I don't know how Lane does that. <laughs> She's a wonderful actor, and you've raised a great family together. All right, so Clark, let me ask you that general question. Um, I uh, uh, suggested that, to me, the pandemic has had a more profound impact on who we are as consumers than any, any other event, certainly in recent history, American history, and you agreed with that. So in, in the broadest sense as a way of starting, what does that mean? How has it changed who we are as consumers? So this was one of those things, I mean, thank goodness pandemics only come along like every hundred years, that was so disruptive in people's lives. And there was a big chunk of the population that was able to continue working just as before. You think about you and me, where we didn't miss a beat. We had to change where we did our work, but we were still able to work, still earn money. But for the most part, we had nowhere to spend any money for a good long period of time. And what people learned is something that, that they just didn't have their arms around, and that's how much of what so many people spend is discretionary. Money they don't have to spend, but they do spend. And so when a lot of us were locked up tight through month after month after month of the pandemic, our spending went down, 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 but our income stayed where they were. And people found they were able to heal their balance sheets like they couldn't believe. People paid off credit card debt at record amounts. And people found suddenly they had money for goals that were dreams but they weren't getting around to them, like saving a proper amount for retirement and all that. So we had this split in the population that is so stark, it's unreal. People who worked in jobs where they could not work anymore and were, as a result, unemployed, living off whatever pandemic assistance there was, are financially worse off today by a meaningful amount than they were before the pandemic. People who were able to stay employed but restricted lifestyles through the process are in the best financial shape they have ever been. And we, we learned something so core and fundamental, and that's what life really costs versus what we were spending. And so there's been a real change in people's mentalities that I think will stick. So, um, in general, um, without looking at, at, at data that may or may not be quickly and readily available to you, uh, you, you the, the fact is that consumer debt is down dramatically because of the pandemic? It was. Uh, so, people paid down credit card debt, uh, paid down personal loans, paid down all kinds of debt. The irony is that as things have opened back up, people have been adding more credit card debt, taking on more vehicle loans. Uh, you know, people have kind of had a bounce back where people have wanted life to resume and they've been spending money in more normal patterns again. But the reality is it's in our heads now that we have more control than we give ourselves credit for. We have more power over our wallets than we thought we had. And that is the kind of valuable information that people know if they've got to tighten their belts, 
if there are people who who didn't get just blown away economically by the pandemic, they know that there's a lot of give there in their budgets that they didn't know was there. Uh, but as you point out, the people who were not so fortunate, the people who lost their jobs, uh, are are suffering to this day in trying to catch up. Um, many of them still out of work. I mean, we're fortunate in the state of Georgia that unemployment is relatively low, uh, but across the country, there are an awful lot of people struggling mightily. Oh, yeah. And you've got a lot of the um, assistance that was available expiring through this summer. So we're going to see a wave of evictions, potentially. We will see very few foreclosures. This is going to be very different in the housing market for people who've fallen behind on their mortgages this time versus what we had in 2007 to 12. And the reason is the big run-up in housing prices is going to cover people who have not been able to pay their mortgages. But renters are exposed mightily. People who have not been able to pay rent, who've been under eviction moratoriums, this is going to be really, really ugly for people across the state of Georgia and across the country. So I'd love to, in a couple minutes, drill down on some very specific aspects of where we stand as consumers today. I want to talk about the price of cars, the price of houses, things like um, the fact that we've come to rely more on streaming services in our home. And you have a lot of advice on the streaming services and how to make the best decisions about them. I want to talk about travel. I want to get to all that in a very uh, specific way in a couple minutes. But what I'm really interested in is you're talking to people either through your website. How many websites do you have right now? We have two main ones, Clark.com yeah. and ClarkDeals.com. Okay. Um, and you're also, t so they're, they're getting to you through the websites, um, which by the way, we can post links to Amelia. I think Brock will be glad to do that. Plus you're doing the daily podcast. So you're in dialogue with uh, your uh, 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 fans every day. What, what have they been, what are the questions you're getting most frequently as the pandemic has continued? What, what are they most interested in hearing from you? So it was funny. We have uh, meetings, as you, as you know, in our business. We have meetings every day. We have a weekly reset, and then we have a deep dive monthly meeting. And we were talking about something last week, that if you go back to the spring and summer of last year, the number one question people were posing to us on the websites and on our podcast were about uh, loans for businesses. Businesses were seeing revenue evaporate, particularly in April, May, June of last year. Mm. And we were being deluged with hundreds of questions a day, very specific ones about how to come up with money to keep the doors open at businesses. And we did a check recently. And in the month of June, we had zero questions posed to us. Zero about financial assistance for businesses. I mean, you hmm. think about a bookend of the pandemic, the situation that businesses found themselves in spring and early summer last year, uh, except for restaurants. We can talk about restaurants separately. But the financial uh, Armageddon they were facing April, May, June of last year versus where businesses are today, those that survived are very, very healthy. Their biggest problem is being able to find enough workers for their workforce. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
So let's talk about some of the specifics. Uh, Not in any particular order, but one of the first things I think about in in terms of how in my household life uh, changed during the pandemic was how we shop for groceries. Um, Suddenly we became an Instacart uh, family. We decided we didn't want to go to the supermarket down the street in person. This was in the middle of the pandemic. uh, And so we were willing to pay the monthly charge to have an Instacart account and there were benefits to that, I mean, to have the groceries bought, brought to our door. Uh, but how did that impact the supermarket industry in general? And those Instacart workers and other services like it, um, they were in many ways part of that service economy that was vital to us, but they did not make out particularly well doing those um, important jobs, did they? No, this has been a really odd thing. So you take groceries and you take restaurants. Uh, people very heavily pivoted to having uh, food delivery from restaurants, grocery delivery, obviously. And in the case of restaurants, I just saw that the recent numbers are that 80% of the volume of delivery of restaurant food is still there. So even though people have generally gone back out and they're circulating and all that, they've loved the delivery. And even though not everybody's doing it, It is a new thing, and it's a hard thing for businesses. So let's take the supermarkets, as you were talking about. Mm -hmm. So they start dealing with the third party, whether it's Instacart or Shipt or anybody else for groceries. You're paying a fee for that. You're paying for that. Um, Mm -hmm. And it also has a certain dissatisfaction factor with it. People get really, really unhappy with what happens with the produce that's delivered to them. That people love being able to go in the supermarket and pick out the apple they want, pick out the bananas. Oh, they look at these crummy bananas they delivered to me, whatever. <laughs> so so people, people don't get mad at Instacart or Shipt or whoever. They get mad at the supermarket. It's not their fault that the picker picked really crummy uh, vegetables or fruit or whatever. So that's something that has brought people back into the supermarket different than the restaurants is that people really want control of what they buy. You know, there was another a really odd thing that happened with you being an Instacart shopper, other people being shipped, uh, which are the two bigs of the grocery delivery. People bought a lot more brand name goods than they did before the pandemic when they were going in the stores themselves that when people would fill up their cart, they would click on, let's say, uh, Ritz crackers instead of uh, the store brand at, at Publix or Kroger or Walmart. And so, I mean, it ended up costing people the extra fee for delivery and the brand name surcharge, essentially, because people stopped buying the store brands like they had before But, you know, there was one money saver. Bill, think about it. When we would go down a supermarket aisle, we would impulse buy. You know, we'd buy Mm -hmm. uh, these chips, uh, these cookies, this, that, and the other that, you know, weren't on our list. But, you know, they sure looked enticing because look at this new limited edition Oreo that's got some kind of who knows what goop in the middle. And so it helped us potentially on the calorie front and on the price front. So it's a mixed bag 
of what happened with consumer behavior in the supermarket. Now, I've got a money-saving tip for you. Good. Rather than, rather than using one of the third-party services for delivery, the compromise that I like a whole lot more is curbside pickup. And the stores have gotten better and better at it. If you either are uncomfortable still going into stores, particularly with the spread of the Delta variant, and you're like, you know, maybe it's not so good an idea to go in stores right now. Doing with the app at the store, doing curbside pickup is really great. And the two big winners of that runaway winner with curbside pickup through the pandemic has been Target. And Target has both general merchandise and groceries. And then the other big winner has been Walmart, where these two behemoths that have been able to invest in the technology for curbside pickup, having very sophisticated ordering apps and being able to order on a laptop, they have been able to offer the same prices at curbside as you get inside and offer the convenience of delivering to the trunk of your vehicle. Good. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. Uh, thank you for that. You talk about restaurants. Um, when it came to delivery, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, but, but I think any number of restaurants that were trying so hard to keep their businesses going uh, when people were not coming in to eat in person, uh, they were caught in sort of a trap. Uh, they wanted yes. to do food delivery. Many of them had to use third-party delivery services, which took a lot of their bottom. I mean, it kept them from making the kind of money they needed to make. That was a real challenge for restaurants, and it sounds like continues to be to some extent. Yeah, so to me, it's a trifecta of bad results when you use the food delivery apps from restaurants because the restaurant loses a lot of its revenue. You're paying more for the food, and the food that's supposed to be hot is mediocre, yeah. warm, or less, and soggy. It's just food delivery is a hard thing to make work. I mean, if you think about what's always worked for food delivery it's the categories that are really simple to deliver, pizza and Chinese food. But name another category to me that the food really is still really, really uh, good to eat. I can't think of one. So that's why you saw as soon as pandemic restrictions were lifted in a lot of areas, people went back to the restaurant. They went back to sitting. Mm -hmm. If it was outside, a lot of people are like, oh, I don't know about a pandemic. And they went and eat, ate inside. But you get a much different experience eating in a restaurant, even if you're sitting out on the sidewalk, than you get with food delivery. And so at the least, go pick it up. Go do curbside. It's better for your wallet. And it's much better for that restaurant you want to support to survive is when you order direct from them, either by phone call or their own internal app, rather than using one of those third-party food apps. The restaurants look at them as a necessary evil that brought in some cash that hopefully kept their doors open, but it was brutal for profits. And we're losing a lot of restaurants as a result, which is really a, a terrible shame. Um, I want to go to another area that you get a lot. You, you monitor very closely uh, on your websites, talk about on the podcast, um, and that's uh, streaming services. That's been another profound shift in uh, both 
of those of us who are consumers of media, as well as the producers of media. Uh, as we all know, uh, suddenly we uh, are, are watching or streaming in bigger numbers than we ever have before. Uh, we can now watch first-run movies uh, in many cases at home, even while they're just now breaking in movie theaters, which are reopening. So what can you tell us about what we should pay? You, As I said, you, what do you, when you monitor various streaming services, look at what content they offer, what are you looking for and what should we be looking for? So streaming, we are in the golden age as consumers. And by the way, for actors, uh, grips, directors, producers, everybody, this is the coolest era ever for all of us in the business because these behemoth companies that are trying to capture uh, market share are losing a ton generating all this content. So if you are somebody who loves a particular genre of video or television or movies, there's never been a better time for you. You don't have enough time in 168 hours a week to consume everything that's available at no or low cost that you love. So this is the greatest era we will ever see while all these giant companies struggle and fight and slug it out over market share. And you can go broke in this too because you can sign up for different things and yeah, my family, there are five of us, and one of them will say, hey, I want us to stream this. I want us to stream that. And then I'm like, nobody's watching this. Why am I paying $5 a month for this and all that? So it's too much of a good thing right now. And people are having what they call video fatigue or streaming fatigue. Take a moment on an ugly day or something when you're sitting around and look at all the services you're paying for on your bills and start deleting ones you don't need. I just deleted two of the streaming services we were getting because I couldn't find anybody in the household who was actually watching them. <laughs> um, but there are you, some things I need to share with you coming up yeah. about the way the market is shaking out and what it means to your wallet. Is it okay to do that now, or should I do it later? Clark? You should go ahead and do it right now. I'll worry about the breaks. You just keep okay. talking. <laughs> All right. So what's happening is it's dividing into three content categories. We've got what I call live streams. That's where you sign up with uh, something like Hulu Plus, uh, Hulu Live. Uh, you sign up for YouTube TV. You sign up for Sling. Uh, you sign up for Philo, where you're getting channels that are like what we're used to from the cable monopoly or from one of the satellite players, that that is the closest facsimile to traditional pay TV that, we, that we've had the last 40 years, so 30 years. So with those, the price points where the, the cable company, the satellite company said, this is what it is per month. Now with the various live streaming services, you have a choice based on the channels you love. So most people watch, most of their viewing is on six to eight channels of what we used to think of as cable or satellite. And so you can use a tool. We've got, uh, there are several in the marketplace. We have one on Clark.com 
where you can put in your favorite channels and we'll show you which streaming service is the cheapest for you to use per month. Typically anywhere from 25 a month to 65 a month. The second category are things like Disney Plus or Netflix or things like that that are on-demand viewing platforms. And those that's where they're delivering more content than they should for a lower price than we should be able to get it. But you can still spend too much money signing up for too many of those. And the third category is, of course, my favorite. It's all the streaming services that are available now for free. No monthly cost at all. And if somebody's on a really tight budget, oh, there are a bunch of them. I've got a list at Clark.com where you can see all the free ones. And the beauty of the free ones is you have massive amounts of content, a lot of back catalog movies, TV shows. A lot of them have um, live channels that are available at no monthly cost, all ad-supported. So they're more like traditional TV. Oh, okay. So uh, I got to get to a break. Before I do, just name a couple of those services, and people can then look at the longer list if you've got it okay. handy. Yeah, I, I will pull it up right now. See, I was so mean of you to do that. Well, I'm sorry. I'll uh, tell you what. Why don't I get to a break? And oh, we'll, I got him. I got you, uh, uh, Okay. Just give I'm us so a couple quick. of them. Pluto is a very popular one. Tubi. Um, believe it or not, YouTube, not YouTube TV, but YouTube, there's a lot of video content available there. And they're divided out by what kind of things you like. I've got a, a new list of all the ones you can do where you don't pay at all. And anybody who has a Roku device, the Roku channel has tons of free television, including live TV available for free just for having a Roku device to stream on. Um Perfect way to uh, end this segment. When we come back, Clark, uh, one of the things that uh, really, (coughs) excuse me, made your name was the advice you give on travel. Right now, that's more important than ever. And I want to ask you about traveling in this pandemic era after these messages. authoritative, most highly respected advocates for you doing better in terms of the consumer choices you make and how you deal with your finances. You can listen to his podcast every day, which is available on all the usual platforms. Uh, You can look at his two websites, which Amelia Brock will put links up to uh, on our social media platforms. Um, And Clark, as I said right before the break, you really established yourself as a leading expert in terms of how we travel, special deals we can find. I'd love to ask you about a couple special deals while the summer is still upon us. But before I do, uh, the safety factor. I think you just returned from your first cruise since the pandemic. And there are people out there who are wondering whether it is really safe to cruise these days. Well, that is a great question, and a lot of that has to do with Governor DeSantis of Florida, because Florida is the key to the U.S. cruise market, and DeSantis has been pushing hard to uh, make it a crime to ask someone what their VAC status is. The cruise lines, as you know, were one of the worst hotspots worldwide of COVID 
when COVID broke out in the late winter of last year and into the spring, and there were ships that were out at sea that no port would allow to come back in with their passengers. And the cruise industry knows that a mass outbreak of coronavirus on a ship will destroy the industry, that they will not be able to rebuild. So the cruise lines want to require vaccinated only people on ships, except for kids under 12. And Governor DeSantis got this law through the legislature, and it's part of his campaign for president for 24. He's showing how tough he is that no one in Florida will be able to ask back status. And the cruise lines are fighting back. There are multiple court cases and all the rest. Mm -hmm. The cruise that I went on was before the Florida law went into effect. I went out June 26, came back July 3rd. And on that cruise, every single passenger except the little children was vaxxed. And they also sailed the ship. It was on Celebrity. Um, they sailed the ship with only 36%, 38% capacity. So it was like being on a semi-private charter bill. I mean, we had this massive <laughs> modern ship where we had it not quite to ourselves, but it was like, what a deal. I mean, we will never have an experience like that the rest of our lives unless we get Bezos money or something like that where we can buy the world's largest yacht. And so it was, it was phenomenal. And being around uh, virtually 100% vax population, it was the safest environment we'd been in since March of last year. So the cruise lines are trying to navigate this. And if you go on a sailing from anywhere else in the United States but Florida, or you go from one of the nearby ports, like the cruise lines have been putting ships that uh, depart and end in the Bahamas, where they can require vaccines, or lower in the Caribbean, like St. Martin, where they can require vaccines. And this is going to be an ongoing push and pull, because the cruise industry is very important to the economy of Florida, and the governor and the state legislature of Florida are wrong, wrong, wrong on this. If they want that revenue from the ships, they need to allow people to feel safe and comfortable because the average cruise passenger typically is older, particularly once you get out of summer. It's a lot of what they refer to as newlyweds and nearly deads. And so you have an older pop on the ships who are more vulnerable even vaxxed, you know, you can get the Delta variant. And if you're older, it's unlikely to cause a loss of life, but you could feel pretty crummy for a while, maybe be hospitalized. And that's what the cruise lines have to avoid. But the experience on the ship was the coolest thing. And by the way, Bill, they were doing the morning shows for ABC, NBC, CBS, and CNN on the ships. And when we got halfway through in Cozumel, they all left the ship and flew back to the United States. So we had 600 <laughs> approximately people on a 3,000-person cruise ship. Let me tell you, uh, it was really great. <laughs> Congratulations. Oh, my God. You had those frozen yogurt machines all to yourself, Clark Howard. <laughs> that is so true. <laughs> 
Uh, so listen, is this a time to get a deal on a cruise, assuming you find a port that you feel you can safely uh, a cruise out of, or or are prices higher because they're trying to take on sm- uh, fewer people to go on each ship? So there's a, a portion of the population, the answer to your question is a little, um, it's not a simple answer, so I'll give you the simplest version. There's a portion of the population that are cruise addicted, and they have had enormous pent-up desire to cruise. When we were on the ship, there was a couple I met that while they were on the ship booked 15 more cruises. 15! Wow. I mean, unbelievable. So you've got a lot of cabin capacity being soaked up by people who just adore cruises. But that demand is kind of like a blip. And there are lots of deals on cruises now where the bookings are soft. The cruise lines are trying to get back to 100% capacity booking. And it's a heavy lift because they've missed the summer season. Summer season is a big revenue season for the cruise lines. The fall and winter, uh, generally softer times, except around Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's. And so there are lots of deals. And if you sign up at something like Cruise Compete, or Cruise Critic, both dot-coms, or you have a uh, high-volume discount agency that you like to use, they send these alerts. And some of them are non-deal deals. Others are real deals. So it's a matter of your flexibility with the calendar is what's going to score you a really great deal right now, booking a cabin. Okay. Uh, Let's talk about air travel for a minute. Um, Obviously, we know that the airlines are back. Uh, They're they're filling their airplanes in in most cases. Um, I have to say, Clark, um, my wife and I, our daughter Emma is back in New York where she's been working on an off-Broadway show that closed down during the pandemic, finally reopened uh, about a month or so ago. And we looked at airfares to New York and we were we were like, oh my God, what are we trying to do? Get to Paris? It was so right. expensive. What is going on there? So this is going to be a problem for the next few weeks. Airfares have been sky high, bad pun, for the summer because there was so much pent up demand. That demand is greater than how quickly airlines have been able to ramp back up staffing, bring people back that were furloughed train new employees because the airlines reduce their headcount so much, get pilots their redundant training they need to get back in the cockpit. So we've got a sudden massive increase in demand without the ability of the airlines to respond quickly enough with enough airplanes. So classic economics, the demand has exceeded the supply for particularly July and August, and the airfares Mm -hmm. are unbelievably high right now. You flip the calendar to after Labor Day and the picture reverses. And I'm seeing fares out of Savannah and Atlanta that are really, really fantastic when you're looking into um, the fall months. And when I'm talking cheap, like you said, New York, okay? Let me see what Mm -hmm. New York is these days. So New York from Atlanta for the fall 107 round trip on the full wow. fare lines, as cheap as 107, 95 round trip on the discounters. And these are uh, these fares are before the junk fees. Denver from Atlanta, 
137 round trip on the full fare airlines, 106 round trip on the discounters. Savannah, you can go to Baltimore, Washington Airport right now if you book for the fall. 76 round trip on the deep discounters, wow. 133 full fare airlines. Chicago, 82 from Savannah on the discounters, 157 round trip on the full fares. So the prices are ridiculous. LA right now from Atlanta for the fall, 118 round trip on the discounters. I mean, these are so opposite land of what you experience just going to New York. The key right now is to use a tool like google.com slash flights where you can mm -hmm. see a fare calendar day by day to where you want to go in the United States and see what is available where you might flex your travel a day either direction in order to get one of these ultra cheap fares. But really till the kids are back in school and the airlines are still ramping up staff, we're going to see this mismatch where the fares are way crazy high. Well, I, I'm really glad to hear that advice. For our, our listeners down in Savannah, that's really wonderful that they know they can get some very attractive fares out of there. And for people who listen to us around the state, many of them are still traveling out of Atlanta, uh, Hartsfield-Jackson Airport. What's the impact of the fact that we woke up this morning to the news that Frontier Airlines, a discount carrier, is expanding its service in Atlanta, and they're going to now start flying, I think, some Mexican uh, routes. Is is that going to have much of an impact on air travel here? They're still tiny compared to the giant sure. Delta. So you've got a different travel markets. You've got people who go because there's a deal, like me, you know, who follow the deal. And <laughs> Frontier expanding in Atlanta. Spirit Airlines has continually expanded in Atlanta, shrunk during the pandemic. They're expanding again. They are the lead price category with travel. And they are what in Europe they refer to as hard discounters. You save a lot of money. It's a hard flight flying them. But they are really, really great deals. And they are fair influencers. If you look what Delta does, and especially in Atlanta, what American does, when Frontier or Spirit offer a big discount, or in Savannah, when Allegiant offers a big discount, the full fare airlines do what they call sit on top, where their flight closest to the time at the discounter, they offer fares equivalent to the discounter. So if you are uncomfortable flying Frontier or Spirit or Allegiant, you benefit from the fares they brought in because the other airlines will offer just time sensitive based around their flights, offer really great deals. And so the, the um, Little Davids have big effect on the Goliaths in terms of how they price at the margins. The big business for Delta and American and United, the three full fare lines, it's all corporate travelers. And corporate travelers don't exist right now. So Delta, American, and United are being more aggressive than they historically have been at attracting leisure travelers and responding in ways they didn't in the past to Spirit, Frontier, and Allegiant. 
Should we feel safe um, on a, a full airplane these days? Have mo- I, I know we can't talk about every carrier you don't know, but certainly Delta has gone to great lengths to try to uh, uh, make their, their planes safe, the recirculation of air and that sort of thing. Should we feel comfortable that the middle seats are now all full and, and uh, we're traveling with people who may or may not be vaccinated? Sure. So... The mask thing is people are very compliant with it on airplanes. It makes a news story every time somebody refuses to wear their mask, which tells you I've flown 20 some odd times over the last few months, and I feel very safe on an airplane knowing the mask says half the people around me aren't vaxxed, but I still feel really safe because of the air circulation. And the truth is you're looking forward when you're, flying. You're not mm-hmm. looking directly at somebody else. The mass compliance is really good uh, by most people. You'll have people who will nurse a drink for three hours so they can pretend they're eating or drinking and not wearing their mask. They're the exception, not the rule. Mm. So I think it's been a very, very safe environment on the airplanes. I mean, everything we do in life involves risk. And Anybody who's ever driven on I-285 in Atlanta on the perimeter knows that the risk level you take getting on that road. And so compared to that, (laughs) I feel much safer in an airplane with somebody flying who actually knows what they're doing instead of the drivers we have in Georgia who obviously failed their driver's test but have a license anyway. Uh, an editorial comment from our guest, Clark Howard. We've got more we want to talk to you about after these messages. Uh, Clark Howard, my wife Janice and I are past the point where we could take advantage because our children are grown of the child tax credit that was part of the Biden COVID relief package. Um, uh, but it's begun coming into people's uh, accounts, uh, checking accounts or savings accounts, wherever. But I did not realize until I read it on your website that there are some concerns that we should be, that the people who are getting that tax credit should be thinking about at tax time next year. And I thought that was fascinating. And I have not heard that reported as broadly as it probably should be. Tell us about that. Yeah, so when Washington starts sending out candy, nobody wants to tell people that not everybody gets to eat the candy and enjoy it. And there are a lot of people that are getting cavities from this. Because what happens is if you are a divorced couple with minor children or you earn uh, an income level above what the uh, pandemic relief for children was designed for, which is a one-year deal as of now, then you're going to have to pay uh, some, much, or all of the money back that you get as an advance this year. This is this is a thing where uh, politicians love to send out special money. And so people just look in their accounts each month, and they see this extra money there, and they're like, oh, man, they're watching out for me in Washington. So what they're not watching out for you, though, is this money's just showing up for a lot of people who are not eligible. And if you don't stop receiving the money, you're going to have to pay it back when you file your return next year. So as a general rule, if you earn 75000 or more as a single individual 
150 as a married couple, you want to go on the IRS website and say, don't send me this money because you're one of the the individuals or couples that's going to have to pay the money back. If you are a divorced couple, you may be getting the money even though you're not the one who gets to claim the dependent or dependents when you do your return, and you'll have to pay the money back next year. And a lot of times when people get found money like this, they spend it. So when it comes time for tax time, they don't have the money to pay back. This was really designed to reach lower income earners who have been devastated by the pandemic. But the way the money is being sent out, a lot of people who it wasn't targeted for are getting the money now and better to discontinue. Because let's say, Bill, you file your return next year and it turns out, wow, I was eligible for it. Then you'll just get a bigger refund. And that's better than getting an advance that you may have trouble paying back later. I'm glad you pointed out that the real value of this income credit, child tax credit, is to lower-income families. I mean, we know that one out of five uh, children in Georgia is living below the poverty line. And uh, so for those families, let's be clear, this is at least uh, for the year that it's in effect, uh, has great impact on their ability uh, to sustain themselves, yes? Yeah, this is huge. I mean, you think about... How many uh, families across Georgia and, you know, we uh, those of us who live in the big metro areas of Georgia forget how much rural poverty there is without any social safety net services. This extra money per month makes a massive difference for people that are lower income suffering financially. Uh, I think about during the height of the pandemic, how many children were going to bed hungry because they didn't have access to food at school like they had had prior to the pandemic. And a lot of school systems in Georgia went to heroic efforts to get food to their poorest children, particularly spread around rural counties in the state where they were in food deserts. Uh, Let me get to a couple more quick things before we run out of time. Number one, Mr. Howard, Mr. Tesla lover, have I lost my window to buy buy either a new or a used car? Car prices are crazy right now. When will that subside? It's going to be more or less about late spring next year, it looks like, that the supply-demand thing on vehicles is going to lift. I mean, it's been a perfect storm. We had... The problem with the car rental companies selling off all their fleets last year, now people are traveling like maniacs like we talked about, and they're buying up all the inventory in the used vehicle market. Then we have the vehicle manufacturers and new vehicles whose factories were disrupted because so many workers working side by side were getting COVID. And then once we moved out of that phase, there's this worldwide chip shortage that's affecting cell phones, laptops, cars. Most people don't realize that vehicles today are rolling computers and mm-hmm. they require a lot of chips. A lot of them, Bill, are, you know, 50 cent chips or dollar chips and they're just not available. So as the shortage of the chips eases and as the pent-up demand for vehicles goes back to more normal, which I expect in about seven or eight months, then we'll be back to a healthy market. And on the electric vehicle front, 
there's going to be so many electric vehicles to choose from. The automakers realize this is a real thing. And interestingly enough, they're not working on putting out electric vehicles because Americans are clamoring for them. It's because the automakers are worldwide producers. And when you look to Europe and you look to Asia, people are buying every electric vehicle they can get their hands on, and we're beneficiaries yeah, but, from that. All right, but Clark, you, look, you have built your reputation around being a pecuniary, to use a polite word for it, to yes. being a smart chap, to not liking to spend much money. Well, I'm that way with cars. I can't imagine, I buy used cars, I won't spend more than $20,000 for a car. I can't even come close to that on an electric vehicle, even if I wanted to. to you certainly, you certainly will be able to with used electric vehicles in 22. In fact, used electric vehicles that are prior generation electric vehicles that don't have a lot of driving range are going to be the steal of all time for people who live in urban suburban areas. It's not helpful to people who live in rural areas, but urban suburban where the average amount people drive a day is about 28 miles, electric vehicles that are a generation back go for no money in the used vehicle market. They cost nothing to run. You buy them cheap, you run them cheap. That's the sweet spot for a cheapskate car buyer like you. <laughs> Thank you, Clark. Really? We got just a couple minutes. Uh I, you can sell your house right now for way over the market value in many uh, cities in uh, in the United States and certainly in the metro Atlanta area right now. But then you got to figure out what you do when you want to get something to live in. Is it really a good trade-off right now? we got about a minute and a half to hear your uh, thoughts on that. All right. Let me tell you how crazy this is getting. I have a niece who's 50 years old, and she and her husband are selling their home and they're moving on to a boat waiting for the housing market to moderate because they're making a one-time-in-life killing selling their home. But where do they go? And they decided right. they're going on a boat because they were able to get a, a reasonable deal on a boat. And uh, it, for a lot of people, if you want to score that once-in-a-lifetime thing on your home, even though rents have gone up, go rent wait for the housing market to get back to equilibrium, and then you buy another home. Because you can pocket tax-free, single individual, quarter million, married couple, 500000 which is awesome. Clark Howard, it is such a joy having a chance to talk to you, not only because I love listening to your thoughts, your advice on, on all of these uh, financial issues, but also because it's just such a pleasure always to get to see you again. Um, I, I appreciate your being on the show today. Uh, all my best wishes to you, to your family. Thanks so much, Clark, for being with us today. Thanks for having me. This is really fun to do. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, we're out of time. We're back tomorrow talking about the uh, political uh, stories in the news. Until then, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care. Stay healthy. It sounds like you better start wearing a mask under many circumstances again. And come on, if you're not vaccinated, what are you waiting for? Do it as soon as you can. See you all uh, tomorrow. 